unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives, a battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Most of us who work on India often refer to the country as the world's largest democracy and the most enduring democracy in the developing world. However, we have to footnote such statements with the caveat that India experienced a 21-month period of emergency rule in the late 1970s in which democracy was placed in cold storage. A new book, India's First Dictatorship, The Emergency, 1975 to 1977, by Christophe Jaffrelo and Pratina Vanil, breaks new ground in providing us with a comprehensive history and political analysis of this exceptional period. The book grapples with why the emergency was imposed, how it was imposed, and why, in the end, it was undone. Joining me to talk about the book's findings is Christophe Jaffrelo. Christophe is Research Director at CNRS at Sciences Po a professor of Indian politics and sociology at the King's India Institute, and of course, a non-resident fellow at Carnegie. I am pleased to welcome him back to the show. Christoph, good to see you. Good to see you, Milan. So congratulations on uh, what is an exceptional achievement in, in many, many ways. And I want to get in very quickly to the substance. But before I do that, let me just ask you a bit about the history of this book, because it has a very long journey. You know, you point out uh, in the preface, that you signed a contract with your publisher in the late 1990s to write a book on the emergency. Life took various twists and turns. You published many books in between then. Tell us a little bit about how the idea traveled from sort of a, a, an idea in your head to execution. You know, along the way, you also have picked up a, a co author, it seems. Yes, exactly. No, this is indeed a very old project. And um, uh, as you said, Michael Dwyer, uh, the director of Erst and, and my publisher for 25 years now, uh, had commissioned me to write uh, a book on the emergency in the 90s because I had just published with Erst my first book, The Indonesian Movement and Indian Politics. And I had discovered um, that uh, the role of RSS and the JP movement uh, before the emergency were, were very much understood it. There was there was no book on on, on this period. I mean, no academic account of of this period, uh, the emergency. So we decided that um, we would do um, a book on, on this with Michael. Um, but soon after, in two thousand, my biography of Dr. Ambedkar was published, and then twenty o five, India's silent revolution on the rise of the OBCs in uh, North India. Then I started to work on Pakistan and, and, and wrote uh, The Pakistan Paradox for Erst again. In fact, all these books were for Erst. So finally, two things happened and made me return to this project in the in the early 2010s. In fact, uh, while I was uh, teaching with Sunil Kilnani at uh, SAIS uh, in John Hopkins, uh, he, he gave me access to the uh, Granville Austin's papers, uh, which comprised of the transcripts of the earrings of the Shah Commission. And, and, and these sources were very precious uh, in almost every domain, every domain from the Maruti story to uh, the testimonies of political prisoners of the regime, uh, including the Lawrence brothers, for instance. That was the first, I mean, factor for re-rejuvenating uh, uh, this, this project. And the second one was that one of my Sciences Po students, uh, Pratinav Anil, 
was interested in working on these documents, which were massive. And, and Pratinav has played a major role in the classification and digitization of these, uh, of these documents, which are now accessible online, uh, thanks to uh, Stanford and, and Berkeley, and, and accessible um, as art copies, so to speak, as archives at, at Ashoka University. So, um, yeah, and as you said, um, uh, uh, we became co-authors because uh, Pratinav is brilliant and, and, and very hardworking. And, and, and we did this book in three, four years, finally. So in the intervening period, that is, you know, you had the idea way back in the 90s. Uh, it comes out several decades later. Of course, other books had been published during that time on the emergency, you know, just to name two off the top of my head, Kumi Kapoor's book called The Emergency, Gyan Prakash of Princeton has a more recent book called The Emergency Chronicles. What, in your view, do you think was missing as you kind of look out at the larger literature that was the kind of niche that you wanted to fill? Well, um, I wanted to write a, a particular science book, a, a book that would characterize the emergency as a regime. And, and that would also offer an explanation of the emergency that could be used by by non-India specialists as well. You know, it, it's a case study uh, that can fit in, in a comparative perspective. And also something, of course, that uh, was needed was to use these, these Granville Austin's papers that nobody had used before. I mean, that, that was, of course, very important. So for these for these reasons, for these two reasons, but the first one was, of course, the, the driving force. How could we characterize the emergency as a regime? And, and secondly, uh, what had made it possible? And, and, and that was something I found interesting in the context of the uh, mid 2010s. You know, but by 2015, we saw authoritarianism. <laughs> staging a comeback and 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 somewhat propelled by similar forces of populism so to return to the first india's indian experience or experiment with dictatorship uh, was not only interesting uh, from an historical point of view but from a political science point of view and and, and this idea that authoritarianism is different from um, other kinds of regimes. And in contrast to, to post-coup or post-revolutionary forms of totalitarianism, it crystallizes only when it receives some support from, from other leaders, I mean, beyond the, the, the rulers. And the emergency is a, is a very interesting uh, case study for that because you see a very large array of supporters, you know, fr from the communists to the uh, corporate sector, uh, and uh, of course uh, uh, the middle class in the middle that uh, supported it uh, as well. Um, so yeah, it was I think one of the reasons why it was not redundant, but uh, a way to bring something new to 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 to, to the knowledge and and once again in some comparative perspective in mind. You know, one of the first questions the book tries to grapple with is exactly what is the nature of the regime 
that the the emergency represents. And you know, for our listeners who are not political scientists, I would uh, venture to say this is not merely an academic question. Uh, unless you understand the contours and the dynamics of the regime, you really can't understand how it came to be, what sustained it, and what eventually undid it in the end. You and your co-author reject the idea that the emergency was a totalitarian regime, but you do find that it was an authoritarian regime, although not a very kind of straightforward linear one, right? And in fact, one of the most interesting things you document is that the nature of the emergency regime actually exhibits variation over time, right? So as a political scientist, how would you characterize this particular species, if you will, of authoritarianism? Well, we, we call it in, in chapter one a constitutional dictatorship, and I think that's the starting point because there is nothing illegal there. You know, it is promulgated by the president of the republic according to Article three fifty two of the constitution. This promulgation is validated by the government, passed by the by parliament, and it, it goes to both houses, um, and certainly. Thousands of opponents are arrested, uh, but key institutions continue to function. The Lok Sabha, the Rajya Sabha, the lower house, the upper house, all their sessions with opposition MPs who have not resigned, even after their term is over. These two houses pass laws, amend the constitutions. Parties and traditions are not banned. Politicians are behind bars in large numbers. Uh, Trade unionists are by, behind bars in large numbers. But the parties and the unions are not uh, banned. And the judiciary is unaffected, you know. They continue to, to, to do their job. And nobody resists. I mean, few people resist. And none of them from these institutions and the Supreme Court validates all the laws and the amendments to the Constitution reducing freedom, including the famous Abias Corpus case. So it's a very specific kind of regime indeed. And and you can, uh, of course, um, not call it totalitarian, but even even within the wide range of varieties of, of authoritarianism, it's a very specific kind of authoritarian uh, regime. And in, in, in the book, we, we um, refer to the uh, typology of authoritarian regimes that one Linz has uh, initiated and revisited um, till he died, in fact. Because that's a very good guide for uh, understanding the specificity of this regime. And the type that fits the best uh, is sultanism, a political system where, where, where the leader supremo enjoys discretionary power uh, with the help of cronies and, and thanks to a certain privatization of violence. So the concentration of power in the hands of Mrs. Gandhi and, and her son, Sanjay Gandhi, plays a key role. In contrast to other authoritarian regimes, which would rely on on a party, on an organization, uh, Mrs. Gandhi had no organization behind her. She had to to fall back on the bureaucracy. That was the only organization she she could use, and uh, and and in fact, Sanjay, in particular, used uh, bureaucrats like Jagmohan, uh, the man in charge of uh, urban planning in Delhi. Uh, but but it's true that Sanjay also used to some extent a kind of private army 
the Nehru Brigade, but but that was not as significant as what a proper uh, vigilante group can be. I just want to highlight something that you said, which is truly remarkable, which is that there was nothing illegal in the institution of the emergency. And that raises a, a larger point, which is that many of the laws and instruments that Indira Gandhi used during this period were laws already on the books. There were tools already in the toolbox, on the shelves, waiting to be used and waiting to be misused, right? In other words, there was a certain kind of continuity, and you point this out, between the earlier democratic regime and this new authoritarian regime. So I guess the question it it begs is, you know, did Indira actually have to innovate at all when it comes to the kind of instrumentalities of governance? Yeah, no, in the conclusion of the book, we write that indeed, to some extent, the emergency is a case of more of the same, rather than a break uh, with the past, uh, to to some extent. Um, But you're right. Um, What is particularly interesting is to see that Mrs. Gandhi is using provisions that are there in the Constitution, like Article 352, or laws which have been passed before. Like like MISA, the famous Maintenance of Internal Security Act, that was there before. She had passed it uh, in the 70, early 70s. Or the Defense of India rules. You know, all these instruments were uh, at her disposal. So um, how far did she innovate? She had to innovate, in, or she did innovate in, in two ways. First of all, she radically transformed the Constitution. Making making the executive unaccountable to the judiciary and and contesting the fundamental structure thesis that was uh, sacrosanct uh, till then, and they see the legacy of the early seventies uh, of the populist repertoire that she adopted to fight the Supreme Court in the early seventies. In that sense, there is a lot of continuity. She did not want the the judges to decide what was good for the people. The people had voted. And she didn't want to uh, indulge uh, in uh, the, the tyranny uh, of the unelected. By the way, this is a phrase by Aaron Jetley. Uh, the tyranny of the unelected is something that, of course, no populist uh, is happy with. Uh, and secondly, uh, she uses state power in a radical way. More of the same in terms of sterilization. Yes, much more of the same. because. Certainly before there was, there were campaigns of sterilization, but nothing of the magnitude of what India saw in, in 76. Uh, same with slum, slum clearances, you know, in the name of anti-encrenchment drives and cities beautification. Yeah, the poor had experienced that before, but uh, never on such a scale. So these are, these are the two quote-unquote innovations that she introduced. I, I want to ask you a question about ideology, because this is something that uh, I found myself actually reflecting on some misperceptions I had had, right? Where, where, you, where you argue that the ideological premises of the emergency, and you know, Indira Gandhi famously launched this 20-point program, it was neither straightforward uh, left-of-center socialism nor traditional right-wing conservatism as we understand it. You know, the the policies she rolled out, you argue, are consistent with 
a quote unquote populist authoritarianism mixed with quote unquote corporatism. Yeah. Um, yes. And I think most of us use as a kind of shorthand, you know, that Indra doubled down on sort of leftist policies, but the story isn't so simple, is it? Yes. Like most of the populists, Mrs. Gandhi had a pro-poor discourse, but her policies did not match this discourse. That was enshrined indeed in the in her 20 points program. But the 20 points program are, are really schizophrenic. You know, you have half of these points in favor of the people and half of these points almost in, in favor of, of the owners of uh, uh, the factories where the uh, people are supposed to, the poor are supposed to work. No, the poor have not benefited much uh, from Mrs. Gandhi's policies. And, and this is, I think, the landmark of populism. The populist is is not for redistribution. The populist is much more for for status quo. And um, in the case of land reform, she had promised much and she did not deliver. Uh, she, did, she did deliver more than, than what she had done before emergency, but only slightly more. Uh, similarly, the abolition of uh, bonded labor did not materialize because there was no alternative to money lenders. And in fact, uh, they did not try hard to create alternatives. Pranam Mukherjee was in charge of this, and Pranam Mukherjee did not act very, very quickly uh, on that front. Um, similarly, outsides were not provided to many people. They were to some extent, but uh, but not not uh, as much as, as promised. So you can't say the emergency was pro-poor in any way. And by contrast, the emergency introduced a productivist discipline. You know, strikes were banned. The number of workdays lost for that reason dropped dramatically. And in parallel, the bonus of 8% of the wages that Mrs. Gandhi herself had introduced in 71 was abolished. So it's not a pro-poor uh, system as much as, as a pro-business, I mean, uh, pro, you can say, even capitalist system. And this system is corporatist. Uh, because the representation of class interest uh, is digitized. Trade unions are not banned, but thousands of unionists are behind bars, and the unions are, have to fit in a new system of representation that is intended to promote class collaboration. Workers and businessmen are required to sit in uh, the national apex body and to cooperate for modernizing the Indian economy. Uh, and these bodies exist, of course, at the state level and local level. Really, you see how um, the real beneficiaries are not the poor, but those who uh, make the poor work for them. And it is probably, if we look at uh, uh, the emergency at this turning point, uh, the moment when um, liberalization, or if you want, a, a supply-side-oriented kind of economic policy, is initiated for the first time in India. Christoph, I want to ask you about a shift in the book, which is between the years 1975 and 1976. And in the latter year, uh, Indira Gandhi's son, Sanjay Gandhi, emerges as a much more central protagonist, I guess we could say, in the story, uh, where we see even more ruthlessness, even more centralization. You know, could you help us understand the sort of shift from phase one to phase two? Was there kind of 
a clear cut point that delineated the two or was it a kind of a gradual transition? You know, how do we understand these two phases? Well, th- th- there is no exact date for this for this transition. You know, Sanjay was already very active before. He, he was very much there the day the emergency was uh, declared. In fact, he was the one who, who gave a ring to the chief ministers. He was the one who was also behind the, um, if you want, uh, sidelining of uh, Ike Gujral, who was sent uh, as ambassador to uh, USSR because he was not as good as uh, Vici Shukla as uh, information and broadcasting minister, he thought. So Sanjay was there from day one. But he asserted himself, certainly, and he developed a parallel power structure uh, gradually. And you can say that this new balance of power um, became very obvious uh, when the Youth Congress had its convention in November 76. November 76 is, in a way, a culminating point the culmination the, uh, of this rise of Sanjay, who had already, um, yes, built his parallel power structure. Um, he had, had uh, appointed very close friends at important posts. Bansilal became defense minister. Om Mehta was the um, minister of uh, Om. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting. Sanjay related to all ministers, all Meta, Pranam Mukherjee, younger ministers, uh, who um, in fact were much more effective than their seniors, who had been appointed by Indira. So you had a kind of parallel power structure. But by by November 20, 1976, you see that Mrs. Gandhi let him grow and acknowledge that Sanjay is very dynamic. The Youth Congress may be at last the cadre party she was longing for. She wanted to transform the Congress party in, into a cadre-based party uh, as early as the early 70s, but that did not work. And she let him appoint at the helm of the Youth Congress uh, people who had no political culture. You can even say that there is a kind of lumpenization of the Youth Congress and therefore of Congress. And many of these newcomers will stay. They will never leave Congress. Many of them are still here. So Sanjay has, in that sense, made quite quite a strong impact. And, and that's around this time, 75, 76. But 76 is definitely the year of Sanjay and, and, and the moment when he uh, asserted himself as the real power, at least the real power behind. I mean, just as an aside, um, you highlight one of the things that I think is of particular interest to you and I, which is uh, the the criminalization of politics, right? It, it, it really does. This was an inflection point. You know, Atul Kohli in his book talks about the rise of a Sanjay culture, right? You talk about the lumpenization. This is the sort of mainstreaming, as it were, of criminals, not just as players on the periphery, but very much people who were given tickets to contest state and national elections who were put in positions of authority. Uh, and, and, and as you say, once they were in, <laughs> they had no incentive to, 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 to remove themselves. You know, one of the fascinating parts of the book, and I think 
it's sort of there in the in, in our minds sometimes, but but you have actually gathered empirical data to, to sustain it. Is this unevenness of the of the emergency, right? Where you point out that the very worst of the emergency's excesses were found where Sanjay and his kind of small clique ruled supreme. And that was in places like Haryana and Delhi, Western Uttar Pradesh. The further you traveled from the capital, uh, the weaker the effects of the emergency uh, uh, were, it seems. I mean, not entirely, but to a certain degree. Is this just about kind of geographic proximity to the to the center, or is there something else kind of politically or sociologically going on that explains the kind of unevenness? Well, it's a mix of both, I think, because clearly for Mrs. Gandhi and Sanjay to control Delhi and its periphery was a priority and was easier. No, the, the network was not that dense after all. You know, uh, they they did not have uh, a, a strong party apparatus uh, to rely upon, for instance. But it's also a reflection of, of the structure of political power in India at that time. Congress remained very well entrenched in the Indie Belt, but weak beyond, I mean, beyond this meta region. And this weakness can be attributed to two different um, factors. One, there were strong opposition parties beyond the Indie Belt, you know, Akali Dal, Congress O in Gujarat, uh, CPIM in uh, um, Kerala, DMK in Tamil Nadu. By the way, Tamil Nadu and, and, and Gujarat remained governed by non-Congress um, parties for half of the emergency, which make it even more baroque, uh, very bizarre indeed. Yeah, and you and you highlight them as, as sort of centers of the resistance in a sense. Definitely, you know, the Gujarat was, uh, for instance, the place where the uh, uh, Baroda conspiracy case. Uh, was formed, I mean, originated, because it was a place where the opponents could find refuge. Yeah. So you had this explanation that is, yes, at the periphery, uh, at least beyond the Indie Belt, you have opposition parties. But you have also Congress bosses still rather strong. And, and that's, in a way, a legacy of, of Nehru's Congress system, you know, when uh, he could not do but um, appoint, uh, recognize uh, strong party bosses at the state level. So in Karnataka, for instance, Devraj Urs was very much on his own, and uh, therefore the emergency was not the same. It was not at all uh, marked by mass sterilization the way uh, UP, uh, Rajasthan, or Madhya Pradesh were. I want to ask you a little bit about the factors that led into the emergency, right? Because I think a lot of the focus tends to be on two proximate forces, right? So one is clearly the rise of a kind of oppositionist JP, J. Prakashanarayan movement. The second, of course, is this landmark Allahabad High Court judgment, which invalidated Mrs. Gandhi's election. Um, you certainly give credence to both of these factors, although you argue that those are really proximate factors. But there are two deeper, perhaps more structural factors at work, right? So one is clearly uh, Mrs. Gandhi's own psychology and temperament. Uh, but the second also, and I think this is very important, is the deinstitutionalization of the Congress Party and of the government 
more generally. You know, what do these two factors add, do you think, to the kind of conventional narrative, which tends to focus much more on the proximate ones? Well, they add something very important, because when you have to explain something like the emergency, immediate causes are not enough. You know, you need to understand what made it possible, what makes the imposition of an authoritarian regime possible. And one major condition of possibility led in the uh, disinstitutionalization of Congress, a process that started in the late 60s, in fact. Uh, under Nehru, as I was saying, the Congress system relied on state party bosses who had a strong regional basis. And they were so strong that Nehru had to consult them all the time. In 69, the split resulted in the departure of many party bosses who formed the Congress hall. And the concentration of power in the hands of Mrs. Gandhi gained momentum after the 71 election. Then she was in a position to appoint yes men as chief ministers and even as ministers. So that was the turning point. Before, before the emergency, you can say the conditions for the emergency to take place were in place because... When in June seven, when on the twenty fifth of June seventy five, she imposes the emergency, she goes, she, she, she summons a cabinet meeting that will last thirty minutes, and in thirty minutes, nobody really objected. And Sanjay gives a phone call to the chief ministers, and none of them objected. They could not; they were the creature of Mrs. Gandhi. So you see how that makes it possible. It's not the root cause of the emergency, but the fact that the party was now in the hands of a couple of leaders, you can say two leaders, uh, that made it possible. You know, of course, there was very little resistance from within the Congress. But one of the most disquieting findings of your book is even when you look at uh, sections of the media, uh, the judiciary, civil society, even the political opposition, is uh, how so many people and institutions crawled when they were merely asked to bend, right? Uh, this is a phrase which has recently re-entered our lexicon, uh, given recent events in India. Now, obviously, part of this has to do with fear, intimidation, but you emphasize something different, which is beyond those factors, there was a shallowness of democratic culture, right? So even when it comes to the Jansung or the RSS and it's the various elements of the Sung Parivar, they were not necessarily, you argue, straightforward defenders of democracy. Why not? Well, in the case of the Sung Parivar, this is not too difficult to explain. And the, the kind of democracy that India had enshrined in its constitution in 1950 was not their cup of tea. And, and, and during the emergency, they made it clear that to leave the ban on RSS was their only priority. And Balaseb Devras, the RSS chief, wrote two letters to Mrs. Gandhi saying that RSS would support her if she lifted the ban. But other politicians were negotiating with her in parallel, including Charan Singh. Uh, and many MPs preferred to retain their seats rather than fighting the regime, uh, even, even after their term was over, as, as I said, to, to the chagrin of the few committed ones, uh, like Madulimai, who said, what the hell are you doing? You're, you are just making this regime even more legitimate. So 
politicians indeed have not shown such a deep commitment to democracy in, in, in many ways, except uh, clear exceptions and, and, and remarkable exceptions. Um, but beyond politicians, uh, Supreme Court judges fell in line. You know, Falina Riman was the only lawyer who resigned. Uh, few journalists uh, resisted. Uh, most of the people adjusted, in fact. This is the word. You know, they adjusted to the new dispensation. And, and uh, observers like Kuldeep Nayar, who had anticipated a revolt in case of the imposition of any authoritarian regimes, were taken aback because they could not make sense of this uh, passivity. They thought the people would demonstrate en masse. Uh, in... So, yes, th this can be seen as a reflection of the shallowness of, of democratic culture. And, and uh, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm working on these days, because that was the most striking discovery we made. And um, one of the explanations uh, we suggest in the book has to do with what uh, Dr. Ambedkar uh, called hero worship. You know, hero worship makes it possible for citizens to uh, obey. And I call this the strong man syndrome or the strong woman syndrome. You know, citizens are prepared, and maybe in India more prepared than in other societies, to accept the diktat of a leader provided he or she displayed charisma. And, and charisma is, is a very important uh, notion here. And uh, I, I draw uh, this uh, from, of course, Max Weber's sociology. And, and in Weber's sociology, charisma is not necessarily based on virtuous deeds. You know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily do the good, does the good. It's, it's defined as the quality of an individual who does things extraordinary. And Mrs. Gandhi had done things which were extraordinary. She, after all, she had broken Pakistan into, into two pieces. She had tested the first nuclear device and she had imposed the emergency. This is not good, but it's extraordinary. And people are mesmerized. So you have this respect for the strong man or the strong woman that has probably cultural roots and that probably neutralizes uh, some of the democratic culture. You know, one of the biggest puzzles of this period is Mrs. Gandhi's decision to hold elections in 1977, thereby ending the emergency period. Uh, of course, we know the outcome of that election. The Congress was utterly routed by the Junta coalition. And you talk a little bit about the factors and the miscalculations that perhaps went into that. But to me, an even bigger puzzle, and I understand that it's outside the timeline of this book, is why the voters, uh, just a mere two years later in 1980, vote Mrs. Gandhi in the Congress back to power uh, with a single party majority yet again after this junta government collapses. Uh, of course, this isn't a subject of the book, but I couldn't help but ask, given that you've you've thought about this period more than uh, than most, do you have a better understanding of how we might explain this, what would seem like a surprising uh, result in 1980 of, you know, you have an emergency, you get kicked out, and then you get brought back in just two years later? Yeah. Well, I've not looked at the few opinion polls we may have uh, 
to make sense of the 1980 elections. But some ethnographic studies um, are, are very telling and, and suggest, and, and I would say, three explanations. First, for many people, the emergency was just more of the same, you know, ex- except masterization. How different was life for slum dwellers, already victims of anti-encroachment drives, uh, for, for the landless peasants, um, um, who, by the way, have, might have received some more land than before <laughs> during the emergency. So that's one explanation. And, and I think it's a, it's a very important aspect that we scholars tend to miss because those who have no voice, well, we never hear them. Uh, in that particular case, they might not have voted differently because they might not, in many cases, they might have not felt a, a substantial difference. But then there is another explanation um, that ethnographic studies are, are, are very um, interesting in reading. Uh, they do not attribute the victims when they have suffered what had happened during the emergency to Mrs. Gandhi. Mrs. Gandhi is beyond accountability. You know, that's what you find in uh, the book by Emma Taolo, uh, Unsettling Memories. You know, she has interviewed people who have been victims of the emergency uh, 15, 20 years later. And none of them would consider that she was responsible for what happened. Now, you have to go back to Vasily Grossman for understanding what is what it reflects in terms of uh, error worship. And, and that's that's the third explanation. Yeah. I, 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 I fall back on this idea that, uh, yeah, uh, you can say um, the error cannot be wrong. And my third explanation is... Um, India needs a strong leader. Even if we have to suffer, we do have to uh, rally around a strong leader. This is the strong woman syndrome again, Uh, especially after the fiasco of the Janata Party government. You know, the Janata Party could not stay together for more than two years. India needs a strong leader, and they gave uh, a weak, a weak government. We, we are back to this, I would say, psychological explanation that ex, that explains also um, why democratic culture may be shallow. Uh, and that reflects, I think, a deep sense of uh, authority rooted in, in a sense of social hierarchy and patriarchy, and probably also a deep sense of vulnerability, especially among Hindus who have been described as effete by the British, who, who fear others, including neighbors, the reformers who may destabilize society, authority is, is, very, is very important. So even if, yes, she did the emergency, but we better have someone who did the emergency and can lead the country as a strong leader rather than uh, weak uh, weak. Prime Ministers. Well, I, I can't let you leave, Christophe, without asking you to reflect on the current period. Uh, you know, many scholars, uh, including people like Pratap Banumetha and others, have argued that, you know, what India is currently experiencing is a undeclared emergency. Um, and without getting into the merits or demerits of this argument, I want to ask you, 
if you could reflect for a moment on the guardrails that sort of pr are protecting Indian democracy circa 2021, right? When you look back at the mid-1970s, you found that many of those guardrails, many of those institutions, many of those norms, in fact, were either non-existent or badly wanting. As you look out at the scene today, what is the state of India's democratic guardrails, in your opinion? Well, there are, there are many similarities so far as guardrails uh, are concerned. Um, within the ruling party, the, the BGP today, uh, Power is also concentrated in the hands of two leaders. Uh, many institutions are weak or, are, or have been weakened, including the Election Commission, the CBI, the CVC, and of course the Supreme Court. Uh, laws protecting democracy have been diluted, including the RTI Act and, and the Whistleblowers Act, among others. Many representatives of the mainstream media have, have fallen in line for other reasons than censorship. You, you, you may also get similar results without censorship. And the role of money in politics is not regulated the way it should be in a proper democracy. You know, the electoral bonds are making the system even more opaque, for instance. And here, just to interrupt you for a second, there is an analog, which is Mrs. Gandhi's 1969 decision to ban corporate donations to political parties without using that opportunity to institute a system of public financing, right? Which essentially then uh, de facto and de jure shoved political funding underground. So it, it predated the emergency, but but really helped to kick off uh, this period of opaque political finance, which has only become more opaque now. Definitely. And, and you know, the subtext is chronic capitalism. And we are living in an era of chronic capitalism again. Uh, cronies are playing a major role, and they played a major role at that time too. The role of KKB allow, among others, during the emergency is a casing point. No, there, there are many similarities indeed. Um, and um, you can certainly say that the, the brand of sultanism that was there in the 70s is, is also there to some extent. But, but there is still a, a major uh, difference, I think. And uh, it has to do with the um, with ideology. You know, the, the country's rulers today have an ideological project in mind. Mrs. Gandhi had no ideology. And her emergency was atrocious, but largely improvised. In contrast, Today, the rulers want to transform India into a Hindu rush in the long term, and and they are the tip of the iceberg. You know, th there is an organization that can sustain uh, this new form of polity in, in, in the long run. And uh, that's why I, I call this uh, a statist project uh, as much as a vigilante project. Uh, we, we, we have... Um, a brand of authoritarianism that aims at establishing a vigilante state that imposes a certain identity and a certain lifestyle to the citizens. Uh, in that sense, um, the categories of Ranlins do not apply because for Ranlins, an authoritarian regime has no ideology. Uh, we have certainly another animal 
in the making in India today. Okay, can I just follow up on one thing, Christoph, before I let you go, which is that, you know, uh, a, a lot of people look at um, the evolution of Indian uh, politics and the party system and say, you know, we've now encountered a second dominant party system akin to the first dominant party system, of course, under the Congress, where we had a apex leader in Indira Gandhi, and now we have an apex leader in Narendra Modi. Um, many of the institutions today that we accuse of being weak, the judiciary, accountability institutions, even federalism, were undermined even then. So what is really different? Is it just a reversion to the mean, as it were? If I'm understanding you right, you're arguing that while those similarities may hold, the difference is an ideology and therefore, I guess, the vision of the nation. Is that right? Yes. And that's why, for me, it's not so much a different party system. It's a different political system. Because what is at stake is the constitution of India. It's a different regime. It's not only a different uh, political competition within the existing regime. And it makes a difference of, of kind, not of degree. This, this is something we will be in a better position to appreciate after 5, 10, 15 years. But already after six years, do you know many countries changing so quickly in six years? It is, I think, the reflection of not only the, 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 the weaknesses of, of the gradwells, as we were saying, but the intensity of the mobilization and of the penetration of the state apparatus. So it's a different republic, indeed, that is emerging. So, Christoph, one last thing, and this is, it seems to be a perfect segue to plug your next book. Tell us about your forthcoming book uh, on the contemporary moment, uh, soon to be published by Princeton University Press. Could you just give us a quick 30-second preview? Yes, there'll be three parts. Uh, there are three parts uh, in this book. Um, in fact, the, the first one is trying to understand how uh, Modi could rise to power. What did he bring to BGP that BGP did not get before? So it's a, a, a part that begins with the Gujarat years and, 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 and uh, ends with the 2014 elections. Then there is a part on the um, ethnic democracy that India is becoming with the promotion of Hinduism at the expense of uh, secularism and uh, the way minorities are at the receiving end. And the last part is on the transition from populism to authoritarianism, with, uh, of course, um, the deinstitutionalization of India uh, as, as the main focus, and the 2019 elections as also an important uh, moment, uh, making competition and, uh, well, an uneven uh, level playing field. Uh, and the end, of course, of the story for me uh, is the um, way the anti-CA movement uh, has been dealt with uh, and uh, the um, plea of the minorities in a, in a democracy that is not necessarily 
only a de facto ethnic democracy anymore, but probably more and more a de jure ethnic democracy with new laws and transforming um, Muslims into second class citizens. So that's that's why I stop uh, and where I stop. But of course, there'll be a follow up. Well, uh, we hope that you will come back and talk about this next book because, of course, it uh, will be of, of great interest. Um, but congratulations on this. My guest on the show this week has been Christophe Jaffrelo. He is the co-author with Pratina Vanil of the fascinating new book, India's First Dictatorship, The Emergency, 1975 to 1977. Uh, I know that your forthcoming book has had a maybe not equally long journey, but a very long journey um, and congratulations. Uh, those of us mere mortals wonder at your productivity <laughs> and, 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 and the amount of time you have uh, in, in the day that you extract so much out of. But uh, thank you for sharing a, a small bit of that time with us. Thank you, Emilam. Thanks a lot. Grant Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com India's fastest-growing podcasting-producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.